the Jacksonville Press. My name is Dustin. If this is your first Sunday here, we're so thankful you're with us, and we don't believe anyone is here by accident. At this time, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and as you're standing up, if you have kids that are going to jumpstart, uh, we'd point you towards this side door with Miss Joy, and you guys will be back at the end of the service. Uh, while you're standing, open up uh, in your Bibles to the book of Ezra. We are into our series, uh, Whole, uh, where we're going through one Old Testament book a week, and we are into the book of Ezra. Uh, as many of you know, I was out this past week. I missed y'all. I was shadowing a pastor and a mentor of mine. And, uh, you know, there were just so many takeaways uh, from that. One of them was just how much I missed worshiping with y'all. Um, you ever been to a church where you can't hear anybody sing? <laughs> you know, then you start becoming one of those judgmental Christians, right? And you got to repent in the worship service. But um, it's just I can't commend you enough for uh, wanting to worship God in spirit and in truth. And I missed y'all last week, and I know you come hungry for the word. Uh, so uh, I continue uh, to exhort you to want God's word and to want to worship. Uh, so all that to say, we're into the book of Ezra. And uh, if you're new here, you may not know this. Uh, you may not know that on the back of my pulpit, um, there's some words printed out. Um, anybody, raise your hand if you know what it says on the back of my pulpit. Who knows this story? Uh, so like three of you paid attention last Easter online. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's uh, 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 some guys in the church, I don't know if they want me to name them or not, uh, made me this beautiful myrtle wood uh, podium, uh, but then a guy carved uh, these words, sir, we wish to see Jesus on the side. So, um, you know, it's a great reminder for me, whenever someone gets in the pulpit, they're not coming for me or my wisdom, they're coming to see Jesus. And uh, can you really see Jesus in the book of Ezra? <laughs> You really think you can find him in Ezra? Well, that's what we're going to try to do today. So with that in mind, open up to Ezra chapter 1, and we're going to read just the first five verses, but really, we're going to be looking at the whole book this morning, so keep that Bible open and out in front of you. Uh, with that in mind, friend, hear the word of the Lord to us in Ezra chapter 1, first few verses. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem." Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you be seated and let's keep that Bible open in front of you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, the message that you have for us in Ezra. Uh, Father, you know how each one of us has suffered over the last year and a half. Uh, Lord, you know intimately the things that we have uniquely uh, been afflicted by. Uh, Lord, you know that uh, what we have been coming out of is so difficult. And Lord, we thank you that you uh, can uh, sympathize with us in our weaknesses and our sufferings, that you suffered for us. And Lord, you know that uh, whatever we are in the middle of still, Lord, we know that you are present with us, and so is your providence. And Lord, we pray that this morning we would look forward to the right things. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know what I'm a sucker for? You know what I'm a sucker for? You know what I love more than anything? I'm doing it right now. Do you know what it is? I'm a sucker for a good question. That was all rhetorical questions. Did you catch that? I'm a sucker for a good question. And a few weeks ago, uh, some of our best friends were driving through town, and Caroline and I had a, a wonderful sort of barbecue out back, and uh, we were you know, sitting around our table, and Caroline asked a profound question, and it was such a good question. And I think it was so needed uh, for uh, me and Caroline and our friends. Um, I don't know where she found it, some kind of blog or something. Uh, but she, you know, we hadn't seen our friends in several months. It's all been, you know, a pretty hellish year, right? And what she asked them was a very simple question. It's actually three questions. I'm kind of cheating. It's one question, but technically it's three. It's kind of like the Trinity. It's one but three somehow. It's like three questions, but I think it's actually pretty easy to remember. And what she asked our friends, and we all had to go around in the circle and say, you know, as we were kind of eating dinner, was she said, what are you coming out of? What are you still in the middle of? And what are you most looking forward to? And I really thought that was a really profound question, right? Because we're all sort of coming out of whatever this past year and a half is. You know, I mean, could you imagine, uh, you know, like the eyes, you know, the dollar signs, you know, like Scrooge McDuck, you know, he's got like the dollar signs. All the therapists in the world, they're like Scrooge McDuck right now. They're like, oh, I got so much to work with. I'm just kidding. I love you if you're a therapist in the room. But a lot of us are still coming out of a lot of traumatic things, right? And many of us are still in the middle of a lot of things. And then most of us maybe don't even know what to be looking forward to. You know, these are all really profound questions. And if I could hope anything for you, uh, maybe this week, it's that you could also have some kind of taste of community again. Maybe you could have some friends over uh, to your home and sit out back and just ask each other these questions. Uh, you know, what are you just coming out of and what are you stuck in the middle of and what are you still trudging through? And then are you looking forward to anything or have you just lost all hope at this point? Well, I don't know how you personally would answer those questions. You may not know how you would answer those questions. This is why we need community because we need to process this kind of stuff. But I think what's profound about these questions and what it means particularly to maybe you and me if you're a follower of Jesus in the room if you want, you know, the power of the gospel to be a real thing that you experience and not just talk about, uh, there's a sense that we have to be thinking about those three questions sort of through a Christ-centered, gospel-centered way. Like, God, what did you just put me through? God, what, are, what am I in the middle of and what are you trying to get through to my head and my heart? And God, what am I actually supposed to be looking forward to? You know, we have this disconnect between what we know and what we experience, and we all long to connect the power of the gospel to the drudgery of life. And I'd encourage you to be thinking about how God speaks to those three questions to where you are right now. And then I would go so far as to say, if you can believe it, that I actually think three, these questions are actually a wonderful lens, you know, a, a wonderful way to look at the book of Ezra. And what Ezra has to say, and the wisdom found in Ezra, actually gives us a guide to answer those three questions. So with that in mind, uh, I'd suggest you Ezra is a beautiful book, and we're going to use those three questions to sort of walk through the book of Ezra, and then we're going to see how that may actually help you process those three questions. But no matter how great, you know, our talk is right now, nothing can replace human-on-human -human interaction and um, you know, what's more human than sharing a meal with somebody, right? I mean, what, what, was, what was Adam created to do, you know? What was he created to do? Well, not, besides be fruitful and multiply, which was his favorite thing to do, the second thing that Adam was created to do 
That was a joke for some people in the room. <laughs> the second thing that Adam was created to do was to, to work a garden. And what does a garden mean? A garden means food. And what does food mean? Food means a table. And what does a table mean? Family, fellowship, and belonging. It's almost like God designed you to need each other. And it's almost like in the church, Jesus is gathering a very diverse group of people who are all very different and yet unified profoundly in Christ. So with that in mind, let's look at these three questions and let's see what Ezra has to say to us. What's Ezra coming out of? All right, so uh, look with me right there in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom that the people of Israel should go rebuild Jerusalem. I'm sort of summarizing the next few verses. So if you've been tracking with us in this Old Testament story, you may know that there's a real progression to the story of the Old Testament. God raises up a nation, the nation of Israel. They have a chartered mission in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which is that they would be blessed to be a blessing, that God is going to bless the nation of Israel so that they can bless all the people groups of the world. And, and of course, they get a king and they get a kingdom, but do the kings and the people, do they stay faithful to the covenant? Do they follow God's covenant law? Do they love them with all their heart? Well, unfortunately, if you read the Old Testament, and if you've been with us for the last few months, you'll know that they fail in that charter mission. And it's a tragic sort of black hole moment in the Old Testament story. And what happens, as Richard just preached on last week, they get exiled. They get removed from the promised land and brought to the land of Babylon for 70 years, right? The southern kingdom. And after 70 years, just as Jeremiah had prophesied before they went to exile... They were going to return from exile. And that's where we pick up in the book of Ezra. So if you look at Ezra, really sort of chapters 1 through 6 are about the people returning to the promised land after all of the trauma of being in exile. And guess what? They come back to worship, and guess what? They don't like worship. They've been gone, and it's not like it used to be. And then they come back to worship, and guess what? There's all kinds of opposition from all kinds of different people. And then guess what? They go right back to making all of the same mistakes that drove them out of the land in the first place. They start intermarrying with people who don't worship God. And then guess what? They don't know whether or not to make alliances with people who can sort of talk the talk of faith, but don't actually belong to the community of faith, right? They're in this sort of tumultuous time, like, well, who do I align myself with? Who do I hitch my wagon with? And also, what's What are we really called to do? Worship is not like it used to be. So that's what they're coming out of. So, uh, you know, what what are the people of Ezra coming out of? They're coming out of all of that. They're coming out of the exile, right? They're coming out of uh, the loss of community. They're coming out of the loss of corporate worship. Uh, You know, I mean, just if if you think about being in the time of the exile, right? If you you could picture being in Babylon, think about like Daniel. Remember Daniel on the lion's den and, you know, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all those great stories. That's the exile, right? If you think about uh, what it would have been like, they would not have belonged into the community that they were in. Uh, They would have been total outsiders. And then when they come to worship, they sing songs like, Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You think they ever meant that before they were in Babylon? (laughs) You know, a thousand days at church sounds terrible, right? 
So you can go to Psalm 42 and so on, but I think what I want to drive home is these are people who have gone through something traumatic and they are leaving the trauma of losing all of this community and they're trying to wrap their minds around what did God just put us through? You know, they need to process it you know, with each other, right? They've been through some traumatic events. So what is it that Ezra, I think, uniquely points us to? Where's the wisdom? Well, uh, this is a, a pithy saying, uh, but I think it's actually very, very profound. Um, and it's a simple truth, I think, that's biblical. And it just goes like this. God does not waste the messes that he puts us through. God doesn't waste the messes that he has put you through. I've shared this before, but one of my uh, friends years ago had done a PhD in education at the University of Georgia. And he wanted to study how people learned. And uh, for his dissertation, he studied, well, what is it that teaches people things? Like, how do you really become wise? And in his dissertation, he studied people on every continent, you know, sort of a transcultural idea. What do, what do humans, how do we learn? And he wanted to know if it was primary education. Woohoo, elementary school, right? Yeah. Was it high school? Uh, was it uh, apprenticeships? Was it college? Uh, was it the family system? And what he found in his study was actually hardship was the number one educator for humanity across all cultures. And it's actually going through difficulty. That is the great educator of life, right? So don't waste the messes that God puts you through. He's not going to waste them. So how do we not waste these things? Well, you know, going back through sort of um, how do we interact? What did God just do with us? How do we interact with God? Um, I've been really blessed by the ministry of a pastor named John Piper. And years ago, Piper, um, you know, just he's so great. Um, John Piper talked about um, profound difficulty in life. And he said, as a Christian, we only experience providence, which is God's control over all things. But providence comes to us in two ways. There is delightful providence, like when you get married and you have grandkids, right? When you get the right job, when you buy a home, when you get into the right school, right? When the cute girl thinks you're cute too, right? There's delightful providence. But then there, on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, is difficult providence. There's difficult providence, right? And so the exile for the people of God was difficult providence, but God was always, always in charge. And that's exactly what Ezra wants you to see. Look at verse one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Cyrus let the people back. But why did he let the people back? That the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. (laughs) Who is actually directing everything in our lives? It is a providential God who we experience in delightful times and also difficult times. So they look back, and you know, if, you, if you know the book of Ezra, you may not care about this, but it's kind of cool. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are really one book. Uh, just like First and Second Chronicles were one book, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. And when you read into the book of Nehemiah, the way that Nehemiah sort of reflects on what he's coming out of, why did God just put us through this traumatic exile What Nehemiah does is he says he did it so that we might have a deeper sense of repentance, that we might uh, disaffiliate more and more with the world and idolatry. 
And so for Nehemiah, when he looks back on what he's coming out of, he sees it as an opportunity to repent. Uh, this is very similar to um, Theodore Beza. I know that's like a really obscure name that probably nobody cares about, and you shouldn't care about him because he's long gone. But Beza was the dude who replaced Calvin when Calvin was the pastor in Geneva. And what, you know, any medical people in the room, what was going on in the 1600s health-wise? The Black Plague, good grief, the Black Plague was, gro- was going on. And so a lot of pastors had to deal with how do Christians respond to the Black Plague? Should pastors stay behind and die and care for people? Should Christians leave the community to get away? Is it godly for you to flee the cities? These are big pastoral questions. And Theodore Beza wrote a very long, gosh, if you think I write long sermons, you guys should listen to this dude. I mean, they must have been bored out of their mind. They would put up with like three-hour sermons. I mean, good grief. But in Theodore Beza's letter, he looks back and he finishes this long letter about how Christians should think about disease. And he says, um, uh, ministers, you know, don't dispute the infection, right? They're not going to argue about the Black Plague because that belongs to physicians, right? So we're not going to de- debate the, the disease, the infection, because that's up for doctors. He says, but ministers by their life and conduct should stir up the people for earnest repentance and love and charity towards one another. Beza had watched his friends and family and congregation and community go through a traumatic experience. And what Beza was saying was it was an opportunity for earnest repentance and genuine love and charity towards people. Uh, He was not going to waste the mess that God put him through. Uh, The people in the exile, when they came back, and Ezra comes back, and he knows God's word, their commitment is not to waste the difficult providence that they have been put through. See, this is why you need each other to process this. Are you in danger of wasting the last year and a half because you're not seeing it as an opportunity for deeper repentance? And I'm not saying, and Beza was not saying that we deserve the disease as some sort of divine punishment. Uh, Instead, it's an opportunity to grow in the gospel, right? I know it's been a while since I've said it, but, you know, the easiest way to remember the gospel is with, you know, two basic statements, right? Cheer up. Anyone remember? Cheer up. You're worse than you think. (laughs) Repent, right? Cheer up. I'm worse than I think. But cheer up. I am more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than I dare imagine. Friends, that's the gospel. (laughs) You know, I remember a few years ago, um, uh, I met a a good friend, and he came up to me, and he was like, you're a Christian, right? And I was like, that is hopefully part of the job description. (laughs) And he was like, well, I've never read the Bible. And I was like, well, do you know there's an Old Testament and a New Testament? And he said, no. And I said, well, what's your religious background? And he said, go into a Buddhist temple when I was 14, and my mom told me to do what felt right to me. And I said, how'd you feel about that? He goes, oh, I thought that was totally stupid. And I was like, okay, great, I can work with that. (laughs) And I said, well, the message of Christianity is pretty simple. I said, cheer up, you're worse than you think. And you know what he said? He said, you're absolutely right. He said, I know. And I said, there's some rich soil the gospel can grow in. And I said, I'm worse than you think I am. And I'm worse than I think I am. And I know I am. And I said, but here's the good news of the gospel. Because Christ Jesus died for my sin and came back from the dead, 
I am more loved by God and accepted by God than I even dare imagine. That's the gospel. So, friends, when I say don't waste the difficult providence, use it as an opportunity to reflect on repentance, I'm not saying you've deserved the past year and a half. What I'm saying is this is the way we grow in the gospel. This is the way you grow new life. You have to till up the ground. What's it called when you tear up your grass and you take out all the dead grass and you drop new seed on it? What's it called? Thrashing? What? Thatching. Thatching. That sounds like a new little boy's name. I feel like we have a thatching over in the nursery right now. You know, thatching and moonbeam or something. All right. It's thatching, right? How do you, how do you thatch? It's the, it's the work of repentance. And remember, you're, you, the way I want you to think about the last year and a half is in difficult providence, not just difficult. Because I think what, what you want to focus on is God's involvement in this. Because that's what gives you hope to address what you're going through still. <laughs> Holding on to the providence of God is what allows you to address what you're still in the middle of. Right? So let's look at uh, Ezra. What are they still in the middle of? <laughs> well, they're in the middle of regathering. You know, if you flip over to chapter 3, they rebuild the altar. And guess what? They're like, the live stream is not the same as in person, and we hate it. <laughs> that's, what, that's literally what they say. Well, not really. That's metaphorically what they say, because they rebuild the altar. And, uh, and there's a lot of people who are very excited that they're back in the land, back having corporate worship. But in chapter 3, uh, they start singing one of their favorite songs. Uh, you know, it's right there in verse 11. And they sang responsively. I love that. God's, you know, responsively means it means this half would have sung something and then this half would have responded. Or the guys would have sung something and then the ladies. Um, who's a choir person? What's that called? Anybody know what that's called when you have responsive choirs? Antiphonal? Is that, did I say that right? It's antiphonal singing, right? We should do it sometime. It's something that King David established in the people. He wanted them to have antiphonal choirs singing to one another. And so right there in verse 11, they sang responsively to one another back and forth, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for a steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. That's the same thing they sang when Solomon originally built the original temple and it was full of gold. And what happens next? Who remembers? When Solomon builds a temple, they start singing. And what happens? The glory of God, the Shekinah glory cloud comes down and it's like amazing and the priests are falling over. And now, it ain't like it used to be. They've been through the exile, they've been through trauma, they have a deeper commitment to repentance, and they come to the altar, and what happens? Let's sing that song, that same song. And what happens? Well, look with me. It says, all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because of the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, those guys who remember that worship service, they did what? They wept with a loud voice so that people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouts from the sound of the people's weeping. Isn't that a profound image? Um, you know, what they're still in the middle of is regathering for corporate worship, right? And they're grieving what they've lost. And then if you go into chapter 4, uh, you know what else they're in the middle of? Um, this is kind of abstract, but I, I want you to hold it in your mind for a second. What they're in the middle of is trying to figure out who are their allies and who should they make alliances with. And what happens is there are some people in the land at the time, people who were already there, that the Assyrians had sort of brought in, 
And they don't really worship the one true God. They would kind of worship him some, but it was sort of like a pluralistic, the way we would think of sort of modern religion, like all roads lead to the same sort of idea. So they would maybe worship the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And then, yeah, occasionally I worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he's just one of many. And so these are people in the, in the land, and they see these new uh, Israelites back building the temple, and, or excuse me, building the altar, and they come up to him and they say what? Hey, we help you. We let's help you. Look at verse 4, verse 2. These people approach Zerubbabel, the, the leader at this time, and they said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. Mm. You remember that show, Maury, where he's like, the test found that to be false, right? <laughs> they don't worship as we do. But they say, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And so what they want to do is they want to infiltrate and be a part of the community, right? They, they, they can talk the talk. Oh, yeah, we've worshipped Yahweh. Oh, yeah, he's the God of Israel. Yeah, he's Elohim. We worship him. We, let's help you. And this becomes a question for the people as they regather, who is it that our allies are? You know what else they're dealing with? Uh, the, the people, the, the, these allies eventually turn on them. And if you read chapter 4, eventually uh, these allies turn on them. And they write a letter, they tattletale to the king, and they say, don't let these people rebuild. And so for years, I think it's something like 20 years, they have to put this all on pause. And so the people are experiencing opposition to them regathering for worship. Uh, their goal is to worship, and instead what's happening is they're being given blockades. And then even worse, what's happening is they're being seduced. Uh, the guys start marrying women who don't worship the one true God. So they're facing opposition, and it's opposition of all kind of different kinds, right? But you notice they're sort of in the middle of, if you read, if you keep reading Ezra, is they are actually, even in the midst of this like opposition and like stop, stopping and going and, you know, wondering who is my ally right now, what happens is God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and it's right there in chapter 5. And you, if you memorize the books of the Bible ever, you'll know that those are two prophets. You can read them this afternoon. Haggai is like all of like, I think, two chapters. So God sends in the midst of this time of upheaval two prophets who remind them what the mission is. And basically what Haggai comes along is he says, is he says, stop having mission creep. <laughs> stop losing sight of the mission and get back to the mission. Don't worry about the opposition. Don't, don't get, be seduced uh, by pluralistic faith. Stay faithful to what God called you to do. He called you to rebuild the temple. You need to do that. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, and God works through the political system to make that happen. And uh, King Darius approves it. So all that to say, that's a lot of um, things that the people of Ezra are specifically dealing with. So is there any wisdom for us in what I just said? Well, uh, how do we respond or how, what can we learn from them struggling to regather? Well, I know it has been a struggle to regather, and thank you for regathering, and thank you for watching online. Uh, but when you go to chapter 3, right, and we get this image of some people are crying because it wasn't like it used to be, um, I think what I would encourage you to think about is it's okay to acknowledge that church isn't like it used to be right now, but we are working through this, and it's brighter days are ahead. But the thing that we need to be careful of, uh, I think, is having a nostalgic view of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is advancing. Nostalgia is when we sort of baptize the past 
and gloss over all of the hardship and think that times were better behind us rather than looking forward to what God has called us to do. Uh, you know, the old saying goes, nostalgia is what fills in the potholes on memory lane. Memory lane went all that great. But nostalgia makes it great. You know, I had a, I had a talk with a local pastor uh, on Friday. Someone invited me over, and I had never met him, and his name was Rick Boya. Who knows Rick? And I said, man, can I tell you the mythos about you guys? That there's this group of people, you know, called by God to come out of the wild lands of California to move to do ministry to the aboriginals of southern Oregon <laughs> in the 1970s. And many a hippie came to Christ, and God was at work, and it was revival, and we got to rekindle that. And he said, yeah, 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 that's the mythos. But, that's, but that is not right. He said, we didn't have a plan. We were just preaching the word, and people responded, and God did a unique thing. He said, we need to worry about moving the kingdom forward, not baptizing the past and idolizing it. I thought, well, sounds pretty good to me. And when he was talking to me, I thought, man, that sounds like Ezra. When we regather, how do we mourn and grieve what is really worth grieving? And it, some things really are worth grieving. Things are different. But how do we not baptize the past so that we're hindered from the mission? How do we deal with, you know, opposition? Well, you know, they're facing opposition of all kind, right? They're being seduced by the, the beautiful women of the land that are trying to woo the men to worship other gods. Uh, they're facing opposition politically by all of these people who are scheming against them, and they're being lied to, and they're trying, the, the kingdom of God is like, you know, people are trying to take it by force, right? They're trying to get the people of Israel to align with them. And how, how do the people uh, respond to that? Well, uh, what I would encourage you to think through is, um, you know, you and I, we, we live out of our metaphors, Right. Um, so for me, what that looks like is if I think that I am the CEO of the church, I'm going to live out of that metaphor and I'm going to think like a business guy and I'm going to make decisions that are business like. Right. And I'm going to think about the church like that. Uh, but if I think like a shepherd. My thinking is very different. Right. Because my goal is not to manage a religious business. My goal is to shepherd sheep and love them. And sometimes sheep bite. And that's okay, because God didn't call me to be a CEO. He called me to be a shepherd, right? We live out of our metaphors, right? The stories that we tell, that's actually what we live into. And friends, the prevailing metaphor from 1 Peter, right, that he tells the church is that we are elect exiles. We are exiles. Uh, that's the metaphor. So when you and I face opposition, we should not be surprised, we are exiles in this life. But are you living out of that metaphor? Do you really believe that we are exiles and we are not citizens of this world? We are citizens of the kingdom. And the kingdoms of man really will come and they really will go. And we pray for them to go every week. We don't pray for the kingdoms of man. We pray thy kingdom come, which means the end of all human kingdoms. Because we yearn for the true king. And we are exiles until he returns and makes the kingdom of this earth the kingdom of our God. When you face opposition, are you thinking like an exile that changes the way you and I experience it? Another way that I think we face opposition, and you know what I'm saying when I say this, is you and I, we need to be very careful with whom we deem our allies. 
there are all kind of groups. I don't care if we're talking on the extreme left or the extreme right. They can use religious language. They can talk the talk. They can come and tell us things about, oh, Jesus this, Jesus that. But are they actually completely committed to the kingdom of God? Only Jesus is Lord. And what's happening as we sort of regather for worship, there's all kind of people in the land vying for our alliances. And we need to be very skeptical of anybody who wants to push the church in a direction that is not biblical. You hear what I'm saying. Now, of course, how do we respond to having Haggai and Zechariah? Well, do we have Haggai? Well, that isn't, at least God give them, gave them you know, delightful providence. Do we have prophets today? Well, that's an open debate in the church, but I can tell you without an absolute doubt that you have Haggai and Zechariah. It's sitting in your lap. And the mission hasn't changed. And if you want to hear from the prophets, they are in the book in front of you. You can hear what Haggai has to say. But primarily, all they were really telling God's people was stay focused on the mission. Don't get swayed. Don't get seduced. Don't form alliances with groups that sort of mix religious language with wrong political ideology and wrong goals. Stay focused on the mission. So what are we all coming out of? <laughs> I mean, we're all coming out of difficult providence, right? What are we in the middle of? trying to figure out who our allies are, what our mission is. So what is it that we're looking forward to? Well, if you look at Ezra, go to Ezra chapter 7. Um, you know, sort of chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra, rebuilding of the, uh, you know, temple and the uh, altar. Chapter 7 through 10, we get introduced to this guy named Ezra. So what do we have to look forward to? Well, what Ezra in the story, what they get to look forward to is in Ezra chapter 7, we're introduced to a leader who is steeped in Scripture. Look at verse uh, 6. This is Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. It says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And then if you go down to verse 10 of chapter 7, again, this is repeated. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules. I mean, what do the people, in the midst of all of the opposition, what does God provide in his delightful providence? Biblical leadership. And friends, this is exactly what the New Testament tells believers. Uh, you know, one of my favorite books is 2 Timothy. And in Paul's writing to young Timothy, and listen to what he says. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the opinions of the internet. Be ready. No, that's not what it says. Preach the what? The word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Don't you love Paul? Like, give him the hammer, but make sure it's like velvet while you do it, right? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Um, hasn't social media and the internet just put that into hyperdrive? If you want an echo chamber, you can find it and you'll find somebody to baptize it for you. And what will happen, people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Don't get drunk with the women of the land, right? Right? Be sober-minded, endure suffering. 
endure suffering. Remember, you're in exile. It's to be expected. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Keep the mission the mission. Endure, be patient, preach the gospel, right? So what do you and I have to look forward to? There will always be a remnant. There will always be people who speak the word of God to God's people. That's not the question. The question is, do you have ears to hear it, right? Do you listen to Ezra? The second thing we have uh, to look forward to is being reminded of the mission, right? That's what Ezra, that's what Haggai and Zechariah, that's what this whole book is about, getting the people to stay on mission. Uh, but mission creep is a funny thing. Um, I've got a little graphic. I don't know if it's going to be on the screen. Oh, this is great. This is from the New Yorker, right? Anyone ever read the New Yorker? No, we just look at the cartoons, right? The cartoons are great. And uh, in this wonderful graphic, I don't know if you can read it. I'll read it to you. It says, is it starting to feel like mission creep? And what it is is two knights, and one of them has turned his, like, suit of armor into, like, a coffee dispenser kettle thing. And then the other guy, his, like, rear end has been turned into a stove, right? So they originally started off to be knights, to fight the battle, to go out there. And then eventually, well, you know, your rear end would be a great place for a new stove, right? And he's like, I, I, I'm not really sure this is our mission, right? You know. You think the church is in danger of mission creep? Are we turning our suits of armor into rear-end stoves and coffee dispensers? Now, what is the mission? What is the mission, right? Well, if you join the Ephraim Co-op uh, this week, our, our guided Bible and prayer guide, uh, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians every week, every day of the week. And uh, this is the, the closing sort of benediction, which I think is just such a beautiful reminder um, I feel like a lot of Christians, we feel really defeated as if Jesus didn't walk out of that tomb and change the world. He did, and the world is changed, and it is changing because it's being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, uh, Paul says this in chapter 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. <laughs> Jesus is leading the victory parade of the resurrection, and we are following as the tokens and prizes of his victory. Um, it doesn't say sometimes when the things are going well, Jesus is in triumphal victory. He's always in triumphal victory. And what are we doing? And he, through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Uh, friends, you live out of the metaphors. You live out of the stories you're telling yourself. The metaphor that Paul gives you is that you are the fragrance of Christ. You are the aroma. When people are around you, they should, they should smell Jesus. We are living in victory after the resurrection. Is that the story you're telling yourself, or have you forgotten it? Um, is your rear in a stove, right? Do you remember you got a suit of armor? So let me just, you know, finish up. Um, I don't know if you've put your finger on what you're, you know, coming out of, uh, but friends, don't waste the messes that God has put you through. Don't waste the difficult providence. See it as an opportunity for deeper repentance. Uh, if you're still in the middle of stuff, you know, whether it's regathering, whether it's grieving, what regathering looks like, uh, whether it's trying to figure out who are our allies in the gospel and who aren't, 
or maybe you just have forgotten what the mission is, um, remember the primary focus of our lives is to experience the grace of Jesus Christ and to express it. That's it, is to know God and his love and to share that. It's to be the aroma of Christ to the people in our world that desperately need it. Right, that's the mission. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. There are victories and there are losses. There is a time for everything under the sun, but the kingdom of God endures. And then, you know, what are you looking forward to? Well, you know, Ezra was so focused on building the temple, building the temple, building the temple. But what was the temple, you know, that building in the holy city on Mount Zion? What was it always pointing towards? You know, it was like, it was like the, the point of the spear where heaven and earth were meeting. That was what the temple was. That was where God uniquely met his creation. Well, Jesus says there's something better than the temple when he comes because the temple was always pointing to the place where heaven and earth meet, and that was in him. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the temple. And then Jesus says through faith in him, he has the audacity to tell you that you and I, we become the temple of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> and that is what the church is. We are the household of God being built together in the Spirit, a dwelling place for God. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Friends, that Ezra was looking forward to the temple, but what he was really looking forward to was the reunion of God and his creation. And friends, that is what Jesus brought and is bringing, and you can enter into it right now through faith in him. Uh, friends, that's what the whole story of the Bible is about, and I hope you see it in Ezra. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Ezra, and Lord, we pray for those of us who are uh, coming out of this hard season. Lord, would we have charity and love and grace towards one another? And Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom now, Lord, if there are alliances that are being wooed or groups, Lord, we pray that we would cling to your word, that we would listen uh, like the people did when they listened to Haggai and Zechariah. And Lord, would we keep our mission on Jesus? And Father, we look forward to better days when you'll return. And Lord, we look forward to better days in our lifetime because we are living in the triumph of the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.